you can find one underneath the seat in front of you. And in those Bibles, we'll be together this morning on page 452. Page 452. If you're new to uh, the Scriptures, the Bible is a, it's actually a library. It contains 66 books. The one we've been studying the last several weeks together recounts events that happened in the 8th century B.C. This is a long, long, long time ago. I think we'll discover this morning how timeless the message is. Uh, Last week, we witnessed in Jonah chapter 3, God's astonishing grace on the Ninevites. And it was showered down upon them through Jonah's preaching. Imagine a whole city turning from sin and believing God. That's what happened. It was a remarkable demonstration of God's power to save people, even tens of thousands of them at the same time. This mission that God sent Jonah on was a splendid success. Consequently, one would expect Jonah chapter 3 verse 10 to end with really great news. Look with me there at that verse. It says, when God saw what they did, that's the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That's great news. Amen? Now, that feels right. It seems like that's the mountaintop ending the book ought to end at. Curtain closes, people clap. Hearts smile, people rejoice, that's it. Or if there is a chapter 4, we would anticipate it being filled with the words of an elated Jonah celebrating God's kindness. I mean, can you hear his prayer? Thank you, God, that the grace and mercy you showed me didn't stop with me. Now you've shown it to all the Ninevites too. Praise you, God. You are magnificent, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God, you are a global God. That's what we'd expect. That's what would have been right. And yet, as we turn to Jonah chapter 4, that's not at all what we get. Now, we'll talk this morning a lot about why. Why that's not what we find in Jonah 4, but before we get to the particulars, don't miss the obvious. Why does Jonah chapter 4 recount something else? Well, because something else happened. The Bible is remarkably honest. This is no airbrushed adobe caricature of humanity. It's not made up. It tells us the truth. Describes what actually happened, even if that means that one of God's chosen prophets makes a total fool of himself. We still get in the scriptures the truth. This is one of the reasons why you ought to be so convinced of its trustworthiness. Now, in telling us the truth about how Jonah actually responded, The hope and prayer, of course, is that we would learn a great deal this morning about our own hearts as well. Jonah has seen Nineveh's repentance, and he's witnessed 
the mercy of God. In Jonah chapter 4, we'll find the response. Tim, would you come and read for us uh, Jonah chapter 4, 1 through 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Thank you, Tim. Tim is one of our newest church members. I encourage you to get to know him in the coming days. Well, this paragraph and the next we'll read in a few minutes is not what we would long to read. Both the presence of Jonah's displeasure and the remarkable force of it are shocking. Can, Can you imagine an athlete being irate upon winning a championship? Would a writer throw a fit when her book hit number one on the New York Times bestseller? Would an artist be dismayed if his painting was suddenly taken up and displayed in the Louvre? Of course not. And yet, that's what Jonah did. Jonah went on perhaps the most successful mission of evangelism ever set out. And yet, he found himself mission successful, Jonah irate. It's unfathomable. Or is it? Look closely, beloved, and this morning you may see in your own heart the tendency to think and act like Jonah. For example, if you think back over the last few weeks, has there been a moment in which, Christian, you have found yourself doing something you know you ought not to have done, come to God in repentance? only to then turn around and when you see someone else doing the same thing, to find yourself looking down on them. That, friend, is a little bit of Jonah. And in many, many cases, for many of us, we have an ongoing struggle to not react like that. I did something similar yesterday. Last night, Micah and I, my son, went to Uh, An ASU basketball game, the line was long, it was starting, we wanted to get in, we're in the line. He's always carrying one of these uh, sparkling waters, that stuff is disgusting by the way, and he, he finishes it, we've been waiting in the line, there's nowhere to go, Uh, there's no trash can near us, so what do you do? Well, you put that trash can on the ground, so that's what I did. And then, later, after the game, we're driving home, and I see a guy sitting at the bus stop, And there's a trash can way over there, and he launches his can, and it doesn't go in, and he doesn't get up. And I thought inside, what a piece of trash. (laughs) 
within the span of a few hours, I did exactly what I've been studying all week ought not be done. The Jonah came out in me. Have you seen the Jonah in you? If you don't yet, you're going to, Lord willing, by the end of this message. Jonah struggled to grasp this sweet union between God's judgment and God's mercy. He couldn't make sense of it. It was like gobbledygook to him that God could be both forgiver and judge. He failed to understand, and I think this is the key to the whole book, he failed to understand that God's mercy to Israel did not by necessity mean God's judgment to Nineveh. God's mercy to you, Christian, does not by necessity mean His judgment on those who have done you harm. Neither one deserve good from God. And if God gives you good and someone else good who has done you bad, that doesn't mean God has ceased being good to you. Jonah couldn't, he couldn't get, he didn't lock into place for it. But Jonah lacked more than this cognitive gap in his theology. That was part of it, of course. But it wasn't just vexation of the mind. No, church, there were problems in the heart. You'll notice in verse 1 that God's mercy on Nineveh displeased Jonah. Keep that verb in, in your mind for a moment. It displeased him. If you let your eyes glance back up just one verse to chapter 3, verse 10, you'll see that in Nineveh's sincere belief and repentance, God relented of the word, the word is disaster, that he planned to do. The Hebrew word for disaster in chapter 3, verse 10, is the same word in chapter 4, verse 1, for displeasure. The irony here is, is palpable. God relenting of the disaster he had planned on the Ninevites was received by Jonah as disaster. Latent in Jonah's heart, you see, brothers and sisters, was a sense of superiority. When God was good, not just to him, but to Nineveh too, then that, that superiority sprung to life. It didn't cause something that wasn't there. It just sprayed a little fertilizer on it, and then it grew. As we look together at verses 2 and 3, let your eyes glance back there. Notice how many times it says, I, or me, or my. Jonah's prayer is not about God. It's about himself. This prayer is not the prayer of a man mainly concerned with God's reputation and the good of fellow human beings. No, you see, Jonah, Jonah's like you and me. Jonah's thoughts were consumed with what he thought was right and just and fair. Jonah's heart was filled up to the tippy top with self-absorption. And he's mad at God 
because God was not who he wanted him to be. In verse 2, you'll see that Jonah quotes some of God's own words back to him. Those of you who have read through your Old Testament several times, you'll remember probably that phrase recounting who God is. Those words first occur in Exodus chapter 34. But Jonah takes what Exodus 34 says and he prays it with disdain and disgust for God. Did you know that it's possible to weaponize your understanding of God's Word? That's what Jonah's doing. Beloved, if you ever feel more self-righteous as you read the Bible, if you ever find yourself puffing up with pride as you pray, if you're more amazed that God would love people as remarkable as you, then, friend, you're reading God's Word incorrectly. That is not what it's designed to do. The Word humbles us and exalts God. And that's great because the only way up is to go down. This is basic Christianity. Now, what would cause this prophet, Jonah, to pray such a dire prayer as we find in verses 2 and 3. I mean, he ends by saying, kill me now. Well, we've talked about some of the reasons why, but if we dig a little deeper, and I think there's some hard things we've got to grapple with. On the surface, we could point to factors in Jonah's life such as nationalism, perhaps even racism. Jonah wanted God to make Israel great again. And in Jonah's mind, if God made Israel great again, then that must mean God made everybody less again. Now, I'm wading out into risky waters, and I know that. But the text leads us there. Brothers and sisters, if your love for your country or your ethnic group or your socioeconomic class or your immediate family, if your loves cause you to desire your own people's good at the expense of others, if you so root for your peeps that you're hostile to others or merely indifferent, If you never think about people not your color or your class or your origin, then an inappropriate love for people like you has become an inordinate sinful love. Love of country and love of color ought never be more than love of God. And when love of God is what is supreme, then love of God spills out into love of people, even people not like you. Anytime there is a love greater than the love of God, then that love, even a good love, then that love has become idolatry. 
Anytime our sense of identity is more wrapped up in being American or being intelligent or being Republican or being highly educated or being African American or whatever, anytime our identity is wrapped up in something other than the fact that we are forgiven children of God, then we are bound to be transferring supreme loyalty to something that can't possibly bear the weight of worship. And friends, this is everywhere. This kind of self-absorption is inherently self-destructive. It doesn't work. Jonah's heart problem led him down, you see, into this suicidal prayer. Jonah's despair is precisely connected to the fact that he loved his people more in that moment than he loved his God. He elevated his color and his class, and he de-elevated everybody else, including his God. As a prophet, as a sent missionary, he ought to have rejoiced at the repentance of Nineveh. But God's mercy to them was threatening to him. As one who had experienced God's radical mercy, even in the most bizarre way, all the more ought Jonah have been rescued from the jaws of self-absorption. Yet if Jonah could have God and his interests, then he was 100% in with God. But if Jonah had to choose between God or his own interests, Jonah chose his own interests. So much so that death seemed better to him than life for the others. Church, we live in an incredibly divided age. Everywhere we turn, People are digging in their heels. We are tutored in selfishness and division every single day. It is everywhere out there. But far more importantly, apart from the precious favor of God upon us in Christ, then we must see that we have the same heart dispositions that Jonah had. It's not just out there, it's in here. So by way of application, I think we've got to think about several things from this paragraph that are hard. Prayerfully, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to plead with God to expose any latent racism, ethnocentrism, self-absorption that lies in your own heart. Ask Him to bring it into the light that you might confess it and turn from it. Would you remind fellow church members that you interact with often that by virtue of being brothers and sisters in Christ who have made commitments here at Church on Mill to live as a church, that you have already given permission to your brothers and sisters to say to you, should you ever need it, hey Chuck, that sounded, maybe I'm wrong, but that sounded 
to be coming from a place of self-righteousness. Brother, that stinks. You ought to take that to the Lord. I don't need to tell you you can say that to me. I've already done it. I've already joined this church. Those are the kind of relationships we so need. I want to encourage you to ponder hard things. Like how long has it been, Christian, since you found yourself broken for people who are not like you? People who have less or people who have more. People who are not your color. People who can't eat where you do. People who have a very different background. When was the last time you were burdened in prayer and in service for them? I want to encourage you to labor in conversations with somebody more mature than you. Further along with the Lord who can help you come to understand that God being good to someone who's not been good to you does not mean God's not being good to you. That God's love for you isn't contingent upon the person who's harmed you receiving love from God too. Jonah didn't get that. And my guess is many of us are still struggling to get that. So find somebody further along in the Lord and ask them to help you understand it. Now how does God respond to the self-righteousness of His people. Well, verse 4 shows us. This is just one of the many key things the Bible tells us about how God responds to self-righteousness. Verse 4, in this question, we find essentially a compassionate rebuke with a certain implied answer. The question God asked Jonah is, Jonah, is your anger a righteous anger? Jonah, is the fact that you're all bent around the axle for a good cause? Now, clearly, the implied answer to that question is what? It's no. And yet, we find that Jonah doesn't receive this good, gentle, compassionate rebuke. Instead, we'll see in the coming paragraph, Jonah stiff arms God, believes he knows better, and goes his own way yet again. Read with me, starting in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. That word discomfort is the same word as disaster and destruction we talked about earlier. The irony, again, is hysterical. God pulls a, like, jack in the beanstalk. Here's this huge plant to shade Jonah to again give him another chance to understand that he relented of disaster on the Ninevites. Jonah felt that was a disaster, and it wasn't. 
Now Jonah's in his own disaster, and the plant is aiming to protect him. The, the care that God extends to his own is incredible. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. It's like a toddler. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is perhaps the most unusual ending to any of the 66 books in the Bible. And just as an aside... Somebody ought to make a shirt that says, dot, 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 and also much cattle. Think of all the conversations you could have with people about the book of Jonah with that shirt. That is a strange, strange ending. Now, as this disgruntled prophet sat outside the city of Nineveh in his makeshift tent, his blood boiled with anger. Primarily, he just wanted to die. But the thing keeping him alive was his hope that maybe God would change his mind. Maybe God would kill the Ninevites after all. So he sat up on his high little perch looking out on the city, hoping for their demise. He sat, he sulked, and he waited. Jonah was yet again done with God. But stunningly, God was not done with him. That, brothers and sisters, is perhaps more striking, more shocking, more scandalous, more amazing than the fact that God rescued the Ninevites. The love of God for his own is far more powerful than our love for ourselves. In supreme compassion... God sent Jonah this object lesson in the form of a plant. Now, again, just like the fish, this is weird. I ain't never seen that before. Any plants I'm around, they tend to die. They don't grow well. But in this object lesson is something for us to learn of God's compassion. Now, if you look in verse 6, you'll see a prominent word that ought to leap off the page is the word appointed. God appointed a plant. I know it's been several weeks, but if you can let your mind think back to the very first chapter of the book of Jonah, to the very first time Jonah ran, at least that we know of, Jonah ran from God, got on a ship, headed the opposite way of God where God told him to go, was rebellious, said, I'm done with you, God. And the last 
verse in the first chapter of the book of Jonah says God appointed a fish. Now then we look at chapter 4, we find that word all over the place. We start looking for it. Chapter 4, verse 6, God appointed a plant. Chapter 4, verse 7, God appointed a worm. Chapter 8, God appointed a scorching east wind. Friends, the narrator is saying, God pulled out all the stops. There are no lengths God won't go. From the biggest of fish to the smallest little worm, there are no lengths God won't go to teach His people to trust and submit to Him. God commands all things, and He uses them and leverages them for the good of His people. That's what He's doing here with Jonah. As the late 19th century poem put it, God is the hound of heaven. God will sniff you out. God will find you. He's going to track you down. He is the sovereign Lord and the supreme lover. Christian, the Lord will have your wholehearted worship and affection. God wants you. God wants all of you. God is zealous for every nook and cranny of your mind and heart and soul. He's passionate to have your worship, your satisfaction, your joy, all bound up in Him. And he will not be satisfied with anything less. And that's the best of news. Because we were created to know and enjoy and obey and image God. Now the plant and its rapid demise serve as an object lesson. Maybe if Jonah didn't get it from the fish and completely, and he didn't get it from the first question of the first paragraph in chapter 4, maybe he'll get it here from the plant. Maybe Jonah will come to understand his sinful heart and God's perfect love through some botany. Now look, it says that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Obviously, that's meant to parallel his exceeding displeasure with God's response to Nineveh's repentance. Think for a moment about that. A city of tens of thousands of people being rescued by God from hell. And Jonah's upset. And one person being sheltered from a little son, and Jonah loses his cool. That is repugnant. And yet that so aptly captures what happens in our own hearts so many times. When the plant did Jonah good, Jonah liked the plant. Jonah liked God. Jonah liked his life. But when the plant withered and died, Jonah again expressed a despair so deep he wanted to die. This guy is screwed up. And so are you. And so am I. Now hear the question in verse 9. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Again, clearly the implied answer is 
No, you don't. And yet this time, Jonah erupts. Why? Well, he erupts because self-righteousness always leads to self-destruction. And eventually, if you're feeding self-righteousness, it will come out. There is no lid that can hold that junk in. Eventually, it's going to explode. And here, it explodes over a plant. Self-righteousness causes us to care more about our temporal comfort than others' eternal joy in God. Self-righteousness causes us to turn our nose up at people we think aren't as good enough as we are. Self-righteousness convinces us that we deserve God's grace and they don't. Self-righteousness whispers in our ears. Can you hear it? It says, Chuck, you are saved because you are better. You work harder. You've done better. You're pretty great. God got a good deal when God got you. Let the others burn. They deserve it. That is the little voice of self-righteousness. And friend, if you let self-righteousness roam free, then it's like a cancer to your soul. When you see self-righteousness, you've got to whack it. You've got to take it in prayer. You've got to whack it, Jonah. There is some Jonah in all of us. Church, there's many things we can draw from this little book. Many important things. Let me draw your attention to just two as we try to gather up this series and, and summarize it and give us some things to take away and, and really meditate upon. Number one, the book of Jonah teaches us that God will have a global people for himself who will display and enjoy his stunning grace. God is not just concerned about the Israelites God is concerned for all kind of people. And God will have some for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation who will enjoy him and know him and worship him. The gospel is a global message because God is a global God. In fact, the scriptures tell us that Christ Jesus has already secured a people from every tribe, tongue, and language, and nation, and our job as a church is to help make that message heard. People like you, people like me, people very different from us are being gathered together by the Lord for, for himself. And that's the very best thing for them. None of them deserve it, but neither did we. Christian, the book of Jonah compels us to see that we don't deserve a right relationship with God. And therefore, how dare we allow ourselves to stay in a posture of smug self-righteousness when we see it. We must repent of it. 
Now, as you look at the end of the book, we made fun of it a few minutes ago, but notice that it, it's a cliffhanger. The curtain closes without the story ending. We don't know what happened with Jonah. Friends, I think it ends without a conclusion because it begs a question that's still being asked. The question is, God will be merciful to all the repentant. That's not up for grabs. That's going to happen. God will be merciful to all the repentant, but will His people be? The story begs an answer. It begs an answer from you. When the Lord rescues people, that in self-righteousness you feel like don't deserve it. Will you rejoice in the Lord? Or will you want to die? Now, a second massive takeaway from the book of Jonah for us Christians is going to be happy, right? Do you feel a bit pummeled? Jonah chapter 4 is a bit pummeling. So I hope you feel pummeled. My goal has been to pummel you. I've got to do what the passage calls for. And yet when we step back and think of this in light of the whole book and the whole story of how God works, and even in the chapter, the way God is so kind and compassionate and tender to Jonah. And I think we're encouraged to see that progress in the Lord, progress as Christians, that our growth in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is a road full of ups and downs. Friend, when you come to know Jesus Christ, it's not as though you're now here and this is full sanctification, no more struggle with sin, no more unbelief. And it's just... That's not the way growth actually happens. Sometimes we pretend it is, but it don't happen that way. Growth from where you are to where God is ultimately going to have you is much more like this. It is two steps forward, three steps back. Four steps forward, nine steps back. Twelve steps forward, one step back. It is up and down and up and down and up and down. And anyone who tells you that's not true, you shouldn't hang out with them. They're not going to help your soul. The path of growth in the Lord is a continual series of ups and downs. Jonah seems to have actually really repented in chapter 2. But now, only days later in chapter 4, the dude is doing the exact same thing that got him in the fish in the first place. Does that mean the repentance here wasn't real? No. It means Jonah screwed up just like you and just like me. And the path of growth is very circuitous. There is no straight shot to Christ-likeness. It is a series of ups and downs. I love the way one author put it, God, understanding God's grace and being changed by it 
always requires a long journey with successive stages. It cannot happen in a single cathartic or catastrophic experience. We tend to think, if God would just do X, if He would intervene in my life and help me with this one thing and do something major, something I could actually see, then all my struggles to follow Jesus daily would be over. But Jonah shows us that's not how this works. And that's really great news. Beloved, if you look closely within, you will find some Jonah-like thought processes and behaviors. They are there. And the way out is first to smell the rotten stench of your self-righteousness. To see the sin for what it actually is. Don't sugarcoat it. It's horrendous. And then, don't stay there. Glance at that sin, give it to the Lord, and then gaze at your Savior. If Jonah found the forgiveness of God in chapter 2, you can find the forgiveness of God too. Because in Christ, Christian, you are already a sweet aroma. You are the apple of God's eye. You are righteous and free. You are holy. You have the mind of Christ. You are eternally loved. These things are true about you. But we don't always live it. And so when we don't, we confess the sin, but we don't stay there and sulk. Instead, we gaze on our Savior and worship Him for His kindness and forgiveness. And then we get up and get on the bike of grace and ride again. That's the Christian life. And you're going to pedal it over and over and over, and then you're going to die. And you're not going to get over this path until you're with Jesus. But God has you. And He's given you a family to help you. That's such wonderful news. We can be confident of this because... Jonah looked over the city of Nineveh and he hoped for it, its demise. Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem and he wept. Jonah went out of the city and gave up on God. Jesus went out of the city. He hung on a cross because he refused to give up on sinners. Brothers and sisters, the wonder of God's love teaches us that we are far worse than we thought, but we are far more loved than we ever dared hope. My friend, if you've listened to all of this this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, then you have displayed immense patience. Thank you for that kindness to me and to us. There is a message for you too. If I could capture the Bible in 90 seconds, and then we'll be done. God appointed His Son, Jesus Christ. He appointed Him to leave heaven, to come to earth as a baby, to grow up in Israel. Humanly speaking, Jesus' growing up years were just exactly like yours. Except that in every opportunity Jesus had, to rebel and run from God, he did not do it. 
And therefore, because Jesus obeyed the law, he followed his Father in all things, then he was able to walk out the city of Jerusalem, allow himself to be nailed to a cross, be hoisted in the air, to die as a sacrifice for sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus, because he was the perfect sacrifice, was able to receive in himself all the sin of all humanity in order that all of God's people would be forgiven of their sin and set free in Jesus Christ. And friend, if you turn from sin and turn to him, if you believe that he died and rose again and is alive and well and ought to rule and reign in your life, then you too can know a love that is unlike anything else you will ever experience. Maybe God has appointed this day for you to hear this sermon, for you to come to this Savior. There isn't another one. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.